You may open your Bible to James 1. We're starting a new series today out of the book of James. And I want you to be able to see that, that graphic. I hope you can see it. It's a little, uh, it's washed out by the light. Sorry about that. Um, those three people are standing in front of, ma- of a map of the world. And we're uh, all the way through James practicing Christ in an opposing world. Um, the, the, what you can see, the, the little white figures there, this is actually a uh, bathroom sign you can buy for sale to put on your bathroom. So I want you to notice the figures on there. Got a man, a woman, and one can't make up their mind. We live in a world that now opposes the biblical Christian worldview of even who we are of what God created us to be. We live in a world that is opposed to God's order of things. I haven't even opened my sermon notes up, so maybe I ought to do that. It doesn't help a whole lot, but it does help some. So we live in a, in, in a time that, that we see opposition a lot. And uh, I, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever read James. Uh, Martin Luther had trouble with James because it was so practical. And, and uh, he had discovered that we live by faith. And he was so excited about that. He kind of struggled with James, which is very practical. Basically, James said, if you're saved, you're going to look like it. You're going to act like it. You're going to breathe like it. You're going to talk like it, no matter where you find yourself. And indeed, in the very first verses, we find out the people he's addressing are in trouble. They're in a bad Place And so today's sermon, we're calling it Enduring Trials. And here's what I want you to take home with you. Just something very, very simple. When in trouble, get joy. (laughs) When in trouble, just get some joy. Because there is going to be joy in it. He writes this book, and you you see it in in the very first verse. James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Would you stand up? I'm going to finish reading through verse 12 with you. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But... Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and the beauty perishes." So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Father, we just ask that you would uh, add your blessing, your your understanding, your enlightenment to the reading of your word. Lord, uh, nobody here wants to hear what I have to say. But Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. So I, I really need you to guide my heart, my tongue my mind, my lips, and that God, what I say would be approved by you, that the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, we bind our enemy in the name of Jesus. We ask you for freedom. Give us clear clarity and understanding. And Lord, if you'd be so pleased, send revival to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 
These people are in trouble. These are people in a dispersion. Uh, James, by the way, uh, is one of the New Testament books that the title of it is by, because of who the author is. James, and uh, there are a lot of James in the Bible. There are a lot of James around Jesus. This James is Jesus' half-brother. They had the same mom, but a different dad. Jesus' father was God. James's father is Joseph, okay? He became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And it's believed that this book was written as one of, one of the earlier books. Uh, but it was written after uh, persecution came on the church. And Saul, who became Paul, was involved in that. Paul wrote Galatians before this book got written. So it's somewhere in there. And James is, is saying you, and, and he says... It says there that of the 12 tribes in the dispersion, but this is a, I would say, a poetic way, it might not be the right term, of talking to all believers. The Bible says in Romans 2 that those who are in Christ have become spiritually the people of God. And he says there at the end of chapter 2, Paul says, it doesn't make you a Jew because you were born physically a Jew and you were circumcised on the eighth day physically, but you are a Jew in the idea of a people of God whose circumcision is of the heart, that your heart has been made tender to God and you've given your life over to God. So I would argue that James being raised in a good Jewish home understood what was going on there. And it's kind of a code way because we don't know exactly what group and exactly where this went. We don't know where they were. And so he is making a broader reference so nobody can pinpoint who he's talking to. But he's saying, you're the people of God that have been under persecution, sent out. Now think about that. I don't know where you're, what, what you're going through right now, but probably there's trouble in your life. I, I would venture to guess there's never a person in here, uh, very rarely, just for a moment maybe, where you go, no, everything's good. <laughs> but just wait. You know, in a couple of minutes, I, I remember listening to a guy talking. He was talking about his kids. And all of a sudden he stopped. He said, as of... 11.45 on Sunday, May the 1st, my kids are all right, but that can change in the next minute. And that's just a smart way to think because you don't know what's going to happen in the next minute. You know, trouble can come, but some of you, you know you're in trouble. I think it was Thomas Jefferson said, there's no such thing as peace. There's only reloading between wars, you know. Uh, I, I doubt he said that, but somebody said that. Listen, they're in trouble and probably you're in trouble. What do you do... When you're in trouble, what do you do when everything's coming against you? See, trouble is not a possibility. It is a reality. It's not that it might happen to you. It's going to happen to you. In, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, the Bible says, All those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, I, I know there's a, there's a broad swath of, of, of um, Christian thought and Christians who believe that once you become a, a Christian and you know Christ, that God doesn't want you to suffer. He wants you to be happy. He wants to make, you know, your teeth brighter, your smile bigger, you know, your looks better. And, and actually, I've seen God do that for some people. I wish he'd do it for me. But anyway, um, I mean, this is all I got. This is all I got to work with. I'm doing the best I can. But the reality is, if you are going to take a stand for Christ, somebody's going to push back on that. Truth is never presented that those who are opposed to the truth don't push back. And we know who is opposed to the truth. It's Satan, right? It's not flesh and blood. It's, it's Satan. The Bible says he's our enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against 
principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And so darkness doesn't like light. And you shine light on it, man, they are going to resist. Well, these are the people of God and they have been persecuted and they're out there. And can you imagine being uprooted from your home today? Like they came in and somebody, I don't know what group, I don't know what group you would have been in, but whatever the bigger group is, came in against your smaller group. And the only way you can survive is you don't even have time to grab your stuff. You barely got a little bit of clothes and food and provision. And you are just boogie, boogie, boogie out of town. And you find yourself far away from where you started. And you're trying to figure out, well, how am I going to get a job? What am I going to do? Where am I going to get money? Where can we live now? How am I going to get reestablished? I don't know all the circumstances, but I can only imagine that these people are not having a real easy time of it. Plus, Christianity is not that widespread yet. People are hearing about it. They, they, they're knowing about it, but it's not like today where it's kind of hard to go to most places, especially in North America, where somebody doesn't at least heard about God, knows about churches, knows something that, oh well, yeah, that's a church. I don't know what they do in there, but yeah, it's a church building. Right? You with me? So these people are taking a strange new idea into the cultures into which they go. And so they're getting some pushback. They're getting a little suffering. And if, and if they are Jewish believers, then the synagogue, the, the traditionalist Jews, they really don't like it because they're claiming that this little guy named Jesus who was put on a cross in Jerusalem some years back is actually the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And so you're challenging their belief structure and they really don't like that. So they're in trouble. And then, so James says, I'm writing this to you guys. And then here's his opening salvo, salvo count it all joy. What? <laughs> are are you, you're, you're kidding me, right? Count it all joy. Why would you say such a ludicrous thing? Have you ever, you ever been going through something bad and somebody came up to you and they tried to encourage you and the way they tried to encourage you, you just wanted to smack them down? It's like, thank you, pow, you know. Like, and, and, I, and I know they mean well, that's why you don't smack them down. They, they're, they're trying to help. That's sort of that's uh, James. What are you talking about? Count of joy, man. I'm suffering. I'm in trouble. We're in pain. He says, No, count your trouble as joy. Why? Because it's an opportunity to prove you're saved. Have you ever thought about your troubles that way? This is an opportunity to prove you're saved. You know, my wife will still, after 32 years, how does this look? How do you think it looks? <laughs> you know, do you like it this way or that way? Uh, so I'll say, I like that one. Nope, that's not right. I said, then why did you ask? She said, I was giving you a chance to get it right. <laughs> this is God giving you a chance to get it right. I mean, that's hard. It sounds horrible to say, but. But you, you got to understand who we are as believers. There's just a, a, a common thought, and not everybody has this thought, but it's a common thought that Christianity is, you, 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 you man, I messed up, and you come to Christ, and you say, Lord, I, I need you to save me, and he saves us, and it's like, great. 
Now I'm going to heaven. I know where I'm going when I die. I got my salvation. Let me put it in the safe box. Make sure it's good. You know, like my last will and testament is locked away. That's locked away. Now I'm good. And I'm just going to go and live in my life. And we forget that when we come to Christ, we don't just like get in a bread line and get some free food and move on or get some benefit and, and go away like, we went on that, the March for Life, and, and there was this guy handing out state flags, and I didn't have one. So I got in line. I got a state flag. He didn't ask anything for it. He just gave me a Virginia flag. I was like, thanks, man. Didn't have one. I said, well, there's an opportunity to get one. So I got a state flag. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I got one. I didn't have to sign up for anything. I didn't join a club. There are no dues. I don't have to show up for meetings. He just gave me a flag, and people treat God that way. We treat the church that way. Well, I'm a member, you know, I'll show up when it's convenient and I'll ask for stuff when I need it. The reality is when we come to Christ, we join a family. We join, we join literally an army whose task is to take the gospel to the world. And I don't have time to explore that, but that's literally the meaning of the Greek word used in the New Testament as church. That it's a group of people assigned to a specific task. And generally, when they used that word, it was a military task. And in Corinthians, Paul said, we have been reconciled to God. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation, so we're ambassadors. An ambassador is a representative of a nation to a different nation, doing the will of the sending nation. And Paul said, that's who we are. We are ambassadors into a world that is in opposition. And the only thing we're allowed to do is give the king's message to those lost people. And so you're going to suffer for that. And when you go to suffer for that, what do you do with it? Well, if you are a member of the other nation and you are an ambassador, you just keep giving the message. You don't quit. You don't stop. You are, here's the word used here, steadfast. You know that the testing of your faith, verse uh, 3, produces steadfastness. What does that word mean? It means hanging in there. It means not quitting. It means never say die. It means dig in and say, and uh, it's like I said, I saw a t-shirt the other day. It said, die, then quit. That's what that word means. It's like, I will not move. If I die in this spot, I will die in this spot. Y'all remember, it, was just, it wasn't that long ago, a decade or so ago, maybe 20 years ago, I, I, time gets fast away from me, where they found a Japanese soldier on an island in the Pacific who had not left his post. I mean, what is that, 40, 50, 60 years after the war was over, and he never left his post. That, we call that steadfastness. And sometimes you may feel like Jesus isn't coming back. He doesn't know I'm here. I'm just on this island all by myself. I'm, gonna, I'm holding the line, but he has forgotten me. That's what it feels like when you're in trouble, doesn't it? He said, count that joy. That's joy. Knowing that this testing of your belief that you are saved and you are part of something bigger and better in you produces steadfastness. This endurance, endurance produces more endurance. It means, he, he says, let your steadfastness, look at verse 4, have its full effect that you can be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. You see, we, we use the word perfect, and we mean without flaw. But in, in, in the Bible language, perfect doesn't mean without flaw. It means complete. 
In, in other words, if, if, if an incomplete circle is a U, right? It's the letter U. But if you round off the top, now you got a completed circle. All right? There's no gap in it. There's no hole in it. And so the word perfect, God has completed us. He has saved us completely. We are made perfect. Well, I still sin, so am I perfect? Yeah, you're perfect in Christ. He has completed the work. You're saved. You were saved. You're being saved. You're going to be saved. It's done. It's over. You're good. And here he says that when our faith is tested, when we say, this is what I believe, and everybody around you starts slapping you around going, you're an idiot, that's wrong, are you crazy, you're nuts, that's stupid, I can't believe you would believe that. Do you give up or do you go, hit me all you want, but I don't mean physically, I mean intellectually they're doing that. Maybe, I mean, some people are physically attacked, but you just go, no, this is it. I will not be moved off this spot that Jesus is the only way and he is who he said he was and is. And so endurance creates this completion. And that's the proper reaction we should have is endurance. The tougher it gets, the more we just dig in and say, I'm not going anywhere. I, I, well... I want you to see there is a place for provision. Because what I've just said, you may, you may be saying, well, I, I, didn't, I, I can't do all that. You're, you're making it sound so violent. It is violent. Jesus said those who take the kingdom take it by force, right? It's a violent action to be a Christian. Because you've just made Satan and everybody that works for him and everybody that he has fooled your enemy. Did you know you can't go through life without enemies? Some people try that. But you're going to make somebody unhappy, especially if you believe in something and do something. You're going to make somebody unhappy. You just got to decide who you want to make unhappy. I settled that a long time ago. The person I want to make happy is God. Whoever's not happy with that, I don't care. And I don't always make God happy, but thank you. is a forgiving, loving God who's already paid the price for when I mess up. And so I appreciate that part. So, so you might be sitting there going, I can't do that. Well, James understood that. Look at verse 5. So you lack wisdom? You don't know how to endure? You don't know how to hang in there? You, you can't make it? You know you can't make it? This is crazy to you? Ask God. He will give it to you liberally. He won't hold anything back. He will help you as much as you need. And he won't reproach you for your weakness. For some reason, we think God's disappointed in us when we fail. He knows you're going to fail. He told you in the Word you're going to fail. He says in Psalm, I remember your frame. You're just dust. You're dirt. It's when you think you're important, that's when you fail and you only disappoint yourself. God expected that. God goes, yeah, I tried to tell you. You got to trust me. You got to depend on me. It's not you doing it. It's me doing it. It's got to be God in you doing these things. And so he says, if you doubt, ask God. When you don't know how to endure, ask God, how do I endure this? And God gives you a new sense of his presence with you. He will fill you with the sense of his presence. And you'll know that he's with you. So ask it in faith. Because when you doubt, that produces failure. You give up before you have to give up. When you start doubting. But what if he doesn't come through? What if he? I, many, many years ago, I heard a comedian say this. Now he's a Christian. And he was having a personal tragedy and he was, his son had been in a car wreck. He didn't know what was, what had happened and he thought he could be dead. 
And he just said, his prayer was this. I don't know if my son's alive or dead, but I know this. There's a whole lot of things worse than dying. And God, I trust you. And you've never failed anybody and you're not going to start with me. I thought, man, I pray that prayer every day since then. I'm not every day, but God, you have never failed. You're not starting with me. Doubting produces failure. Doubting reveals our double-mindedness, uh, the fact that we don't really trust God. And, and I, I say that understanding that can be taken wrongly because sometimes, you know, after Mother Teresa died, they opened her diaries and read them. She doubted whether she knew Christ or not. She doubted whether she made a difference or not. She had a lot of self-doubt. It's part of the human condition because we know we're not perfect. This is why you see a lot of uh, celebrity-type people getting involved in causes that they deem great because they know that they don't deserve all the attention they get. This is a psychological condition that's been studied and all of that. We know we didn't deserve salvation. We know that, and we begin to doubt. And when you're trying to do it in your own strength, you really will doubt because you know you can't do it. And we... It just reveals that we're not really trusting God. I, I mean it that way. God will come through. But I love Hebrews 11. I love the three boys in the fiery furnace in Daniel. Even if he doesn't answer our prayer, even if he doesn't deliver us, be this known to you, O king. We ain't bound to your idol. We are steadfast. We will stand there. And if it costs us our life on this earth, so be it. Because you kill me, you've activated the greatest things ever going to happen to me. And that's eternal life in heaven. So go for it. Now, what do you do with somebody like that? Can you imagine Paul? <laughs> Satan comes up to Paul and says, Hey, Paul, I'll, I'll cut back on the persecution, man. I'll, I'll stop everybody from beating you up. I'll give you everything your heart could have ever desired if you just deny Christ and follow me. He says, You can't take anything from me. I don't have anything. He said, oh, well, I'll tell you what then. I will give you this world. I'll give you everything in this world if you'll just follow me. And Paul says, you can. I already have everything. As Paul wrote that in, in one of the epistles, he said, having all things, possessing nothing. We got everything we need, but we don't own any of it. He said, well, I own my house. Have a heart attack next five minutes. Tell me whose that is. And hey, George, you're gone. Nothing in this world is permanent. It's only three eternal things. God, God's word, and the souls of men. That's it. And when we live for cars and pleasure and homes and possessions and clothes and people, people's souls are eternal. They're going to heaven or hell. God is eternal. His word is eternal. Other than that, everything else is temporary. So why do you hold on to it so tightly? And Paul says these people in persecution have already lost everything. And you're persecuted. And you're like, I don't know what to do. We're, we were trying to live for God. We thought Jesus was the answer. Now we're over here and we're beating us up for it. We don't get it. And he goes, great, good. That shows that you're believing the right thing because the devil's after you so bad. And if you're struggling, just ask God for help. He'll give it to you. Don't give up. Don't quit. Because when you doubt, you're going to be driven like a wave of the sea, driven by the wind. You won't receive anything from the Lord because you're double-minded and unstable. Trust God and stay centered. You see, here's the perspective on winning and losing in life. It begins in verse 9. I want you to read this carefully. We are very guilty of reading things 
and reading things that aren't there. Notice what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises, it's scorching heat, withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. What is he saying there? He says this. Hey, you were poor to start with and now you have the riches of heaven. God has given you Christ himself. God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You own heaven. You sit in heavenly places in Christ. You will reign with him. He's given you everything you need. Praise God for that. But you were a rich guy before. Man, you had the world. You had the tiger by the tail. You own, you know, you were that rich socialist that's running for president. You have three houses and you believe in giving away all the wealth except yours. And now suddenly you lost everything. Man, praise God. Because you didn't own it anyway. And God's just reminding you, you've already got everything you need. See, I used to think those were like, one was good, one was bad. He's saying, it doesn't matter where you were and where you are. God's got you. And it's the same thing. You now know, oh wow, I was living for this world and this world isn't worth living for. Or... I didn't have anything, and now I own heaven. I'm with God in heaven, reigning with Christ. Wow, just find some joy. But I'm suffering, and it hurts. I know. That's why God led Paul later to write these words. This momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. I just came up with a phrase for myself Sometimes, just like you, I start thinking, man, I wish I had. I wish I could. I wish, I wish, I wish, right? And I came up with this phrase just for me. You can take it if you want it. I, it's, it's free. I don't care. I just say, that's what heaven's for. I don't have to have it now because if I had it now, I'm going to lose it anyway. Whatever I need, I'm going to get in heaven. And I'm going to be perfectly happy. So remain steadfast, he says in verse 12, and receive the crown of life. Notice that. Which God promised to those who love him. If you love God, and He, why do you want to do that? Because living that way, you know I'm receiving a reward. And that fixes your thinking. Because you're not living for the reward so you can have it. You're living for a reward that you are going to be able to present to Jesus. When you're a kid and you pick a wildflower, it might be a clover leaf or something, a weed, and you take it into your mom, and, oh, honey, this is so beautiful, thank you. And you scribble some little picture and write some little words. This is wonderful. It becomes refrigerator art. And she loves it. Kids don't, they, they, they love that, right? Then you get older and you have a girlfriend, boyfriend, your wife, husband, your children, and you say, man, I wish I could afford to give you this. But you can't. And you feel inadequate. That you couldn't provide the thing you wanted to provide for the one you loved. Number one, they don't care about that. They care that they got you, not that. Right? 
Don't forget that God wants us, not our stuff. We give him all our stuff because it wasn't worth anything anyway, and he can do more with it than we can, right? But he says, tell you what, if when you lose everything, you stay faithful to me, I'm going to give you something so you can give it back to me. Man, my kids loved to give their mama stuff when they were little and didn't have a job and couldn't afford anything because daddy bought it and gave it to them to give her. Right? Look what I got you, mommy. Yay, honey, that's so wonderful. And I'm going, don't forget who really paid for that, okay? <laughs> you think God's going to give you rewards in heaven? You're going to go, look what I have done. Now you're going to say, oh, wow, Jesus did this through me. And now he's going to give me a reward for doing what he did? No, Lord, you deserve this. And we're going to give it back to him. And say, thank you. And all of a sudden, I think in the, that moment, we'll forget the trial that we went through to win that prize. Well, what can you do with all this this week? First of all, take whatever tribulation you're in as joy. <laughs> it's just joy. Decide how you're going to prove your faith in the trial. Say, wow, God's got me in an unusual tough spot. Hmm, what does he want to do with me here? There's something he wants. There's some way I'm going to be able to glorify him right here. And when I do, I'm going to be adding to what I'm going to be able to give him later. Because he's helping me right now in the trial so that later I can give him a reward. So ask yourself, secondly, where am I weak? And ask God for wisdom. And this is where you get wisdom in his book, in the Bible. Search the scriptures to find out, Lord, where is the strength for this? Where is the promise? Where am I going to find the strength to go through because I want to quit right now. I want to give up. And then thirdly, thank God for your salvation. And any loss that you may have experienced, knowing that our gain is in eternity, not here. There are people that have given up so much for Christ. I knew a man that he's in ministry today. And he... He was working at the time for a, a computer-type company, installing systems and buildings and things. And God put a call on his life, and he told his boss, I'm going to quit, and I'm going to go off to school. And his boss said, we got a job we just got, and I need you to go to Colorado and work for one year. And if you do that, I'll give you a million dollars, literally. And then you want to worry about the money for your education and ministry and future. You can invest it. You'll have money. And he said, God called me to go now. I can't delay it. He turned out a million dollars to make little or nothing. And he thanks God every day for that loss. Because he has to depend on Christ every day for what he has. So whatever you've lost, Paul said... Yeah, I could boast about this, I could boast about that, but I count all that is rubbish to throw into the garbage for the excellency of knowing Christ. Paul had a lot to brag about, and he threw it all away to know Christ.